You probably wouldn't be surprised to know there are some pretty strange laws still on the books in Australia. One that's not on the books anymore, it lasted until 1980, which not very long ago was just yesterday. It was in Melbourne illegal for a taxi driver to drive around without a bale of hay in the boot of his car, or her car. Did you know that? That's, now, now, I'm pretty certain these are actual laws that actually existed. Uh, that goes way back, I guess, to the time when horses were the, were the king of the roads in Melbourne, and the law was just never repealed. It was repealed in 1980, but today it's still illegal to ride your bike no hands anywhere in Australia. That's illegal. So you've probably broken the law a little bit in your time. It's illegal to ride your bike and walk your dog at the same time. I guess somebody fell off the bike one day and busted their face or whatever, and it was because they walked it. So they said, that's it. We'll make it illegal. Ruined it for all of us. If you have a big dog, it'd be a good idea to walk the dog while you're riding your bike. You sit back. Hold on. It's illegal to do that. You better stop doing it. Unnecessary beeping of your horn is illegal in Australia. I don't know who defines what unnecessary is. If it's unnecessary, then it's against the law. In Western Australia, it is illegal to drive your car carrying more than 50 kilograms of potatoes in it. Isn't that a funny one? I don't, I don't know why that is. It just is. You're not allowed to do that. Some agriculture thing. Don't know. God has law, laws. And not any of the laws that God gives us to keep today are the least bit strange. Now, the challenge is that many people are challenged by the law of God. What we're going to find tonight is that the law of God is front and center in the final days of this earth's history. Just is. Now, more and more, and I don't want to get specific here, but more and more the media is reflecting a distaste for the law of God. If you're some stuffy old Christian who believes that a person should simply obey God, then you're some kind of weirdo, and of course you're intolerant and unkind. That's how it's being portrayed. And as I mentioned early, early on in this seminar, this Revelation Today series, that's all part of a plan. It's all part of a plan. Over time, the devil has succeeded in marginalizing Christian thought. Now, I'm not one of these people who, who do the, the, the bleeding heart, oh, us poor Christians have it so bad. I don't mean that. It's interesting how you read in the United States that, you know, we're being persecuted, us Christians. Oh, no, no, no. Go to Iraq and parts of Africa and the Middle East. That's persecution. What we're dealing with here in the Western world isn't persecution. It may be intolerance or stupidity, but it's not persecution. So don't get me wrong. But more and more, if you believe that to obey God is the right thing to do, then you're, you're a little on the weird side. But if you look in the Bible, you discover that God's law plays a really important role, a pivotal role in this great battle between good and evil that has been raging since time immemorial. The law of God, should it be kept or shouldn't it? Well, of course it should, but I'll tell you what, once you drill down, you'll find people who say, yeah, but, that's what they'll say, yeah, but, 
Well, let's see if we can find the year but tonight as we look at the law of God. I think what we do is we begin by looking through the Ten Commandments and seeing if we can find a problem with them or fault with them, see if there's anything wrong with them, if we can find one that shouldn't be kept anymore. What's really interesting is that in Great Britain just recently, I wish I had these stats, a really large survey was done and it was demonstrated that the majority of Great Britons believe that maybe six of the Ten Commandments should still be kept, but there's about four that the majority of people living in the UK say, yeah, we don't need those anymore. That's really interesting. But here's what the Bible says in Exodus chapter 20 where the Ten Commandments are given. God spake all these words saying, I am the Lord your God which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And then he said, you shall have no other gods before me. So we'll look at these. There are 10 of them. This won't take us very long. We have other things to look at tonight. Do we see a problem with this commandment? No other gods but God. It's a little bit like saying no other husbands but your husband. No other wife but your wife. If we're going to have a God, there can only be one God. If we're going to worship the God of heaven, then you can't have other little gods or other major gods besides. It doesn't work. It would be a very divided heart, and then God wouldn't be your God. So the Bible says, God said, you shall have no other gods before me. Then he said, you shall not make unto thee any graven images. You shall not bow down yourself to them to serve them. That doesn't mean you can't have a photograph on your wall. What many people fail to remember is that there were statues of angels in the most holy place of the earthly sanctuary and the temple. So God's not saying you don't have any likenesses of anything at all. I don't know what he means. He means don't make likenesses and have them for the purpose of bowing down before them and worshiping them. I don't mean that's an escape hatch or a, or a, or a, a loosening of what the Bible says. But some people can take this to an extreme and say no photographs, no pictures, no nothing. That's not what he's getting at. But don't have images and idols and don't use them in worship. That's fair. I th is that one fair? Does that seem okay to you? Sure, sure. Third commandment says, third commandment says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And many people do. Many people use God's name carelessly. They use it in a, in a curse word sort of a way, in a swear word sort of way. In addition to that, I believe what the Bible is saying is that when you claim to be a believer but you're really not, that is taking God's name but in vain. But if God is, if God, is God after all, you know, people use God's name like a swear word. You wouldn't walk around Parliament in Canberra and, and get angry and go, ah, oh, Scott Morrison. You wouldn't do that. Ah, Kevin Rudd. You wouldn't, or maybe you would. I don't know. I'm not trying to be political. I'm, I'm neutral in this thing, you know. But you wouldn't do that. You, 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 that would be disrespectful. Imagine using God's name in a careless, disrespectful, irreverent way. People do it, and I don't want to get on you about that tonight, but I think we can see that this commandment works. It's good. It's fair. If you're going to worship somebody, then you should respect that somebody. To show disrespect in one way is to undermine respect and worship pretty much in every way. Another commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This is really interesting. This is the commandment that says God wants to spend time with you. He wants to take time with you. God is a personal God. God wants to connect. He's not an impersonal God. Remember when he gave Moses the plans for the sanctuary, he said, let them make me a sanctuary 
that I may dwell among them. I want to spend time. Relationships are built out of time. And so God says, I want to take time with you. Anything wrong with this one? We're kind of forgetting it. But if you go back to when grandma was a little girl, people took this commandment kind of seriously. They recognized that part of serving God, worshiping God was remembering that there is a holy day and treating it like it's holy. That's one of the Ten Commandments as well. The fifth commandment says, honor your father and your mother. Do we agree with this one or not? Every parent in the room absolutely agrees with this one. This commandment given by God to protect, to safeguard the family. When there's disrespect for parents, the family, the family unit on which society is built is undermined, you see? And so God makes a very strong point. Respect your parents. Now, of course, some people say, how can I honor my father? He beat me or he abused me or molested me or did something horrible to me. My father was a pig. My mother was a witch. How do I honor them? You can still live in a way to honor them. It does not mean you have to go to their house on Mother's Day and Father's Day. Sometimes relationships have bottomed out to the extent that it is best to keep distance. But you can even do that and honor your mother and your father. Don't live to dishonor. But to take it at face value, honor your father and your mother, we would agree with that. That's good for society. The sixth commandment says thou shalt not kill. It's not talking about soldiers. The word really is murder. You shall not murder. Do we agree with this one? Yes, we do. Seventh commandment says you shall not commit adultery. Why did God write that one on the Ten Commandments? Well, look around society where half of marriages end in divorce where people are traumatized because of relationships going bad, where children are raised in broken homes and undoubtedly, I'm not finding fault. Very often people find themselves in a divorce situation through no fault of their own. So if, if you feel like I'm implicating you, I'm really not. But the studies definitely reveal that children who grow up with a mother and a father do much, much better overall, probably for a variety of reasons. But this is a commandment given to safeguard the family to safeguard your dignity and your self-respect, no one's going to say really and mean it, oh, this commandment is optional. We really don't want to obey this one. So the seventh commandment, that's a good one. Eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. I know you believe in this one because you locked your car. You locked your house. You don't leave your wallet laying around everywhere. We agree with this one. If only people obeyed this one, that would be wonderful. The ninth commandment says you shall not lie. Don't lie. It's good to be able to believe people. It's, it's good to be able to trust people. It's great to have a society. It would be great to have a society where a person's word was their bond. But this represents the principles of God. God doesn't lie. It says in the Bible, God is not a man that he should lie. The devil is a liar. God's not a liar. This one, hey, it's election season. Don't you wish everybody would keep this commandment? You're going to see a lot of breaking of this commandment in ads right about now leading up to election day. I can promise you that. Tenth commandment says you shall not covet. That doesn't mean that you can't see something in a shop window and say, ooh, I'd like that. See a vehicle parked by the road, say, ooh, it'd be nice to have one of those. That's not, well, that could be coveting, but that, no. That may be just aspiration. It may be just planning. It may be okay. But when you see something that belongs to your neighbor and you want that, 
God said, don't covet your neighbor's stuff. And he said, don't covet your neighbor's wife. That would mean spouse. So, you know, if you're in a marriage relationship and you spend all day long daydreaming about somebody else's spouse, you're in a pretty bad situation and before long your family's in trouble. God says, don't do that. If you live in a house and you're perfectly well off, but all you want to do is live in a castle like the guy down the street, you're going to be disappointed in what you have and disappointed in what God has given you. So be content. Yeah, work hard. Trade up, buy bigger if that's what floats your boat. But be content because not to be content really drags you down. Ten commandments, we see they're all very good ideas. I don't think we should modify them. I don't think we should do away with any of them. I don't think we should change them. They all seem to be pretty well okay. Now, I've no clue how many laws there are on the books in Australia. There's 580 local councils, uh, two territory governments, six state governments, and a federal government. We've got tons of laws in this country. God somehow managed to boil his principles down to 10, just 10, and that summarized the whole thing. But we have a challenge here, a challenge. If the Bible is clear that God has 10 commandments and therefore we ought to keep them, they're not the 10 suggestions, you know. They're not the 10 good ideas. They're the 10 commandments. If God has 10 commandments, you might be looking at that list going on saying, no other gods before God. Ooh, if I was really honest, I probably spend more time worshiping the AFL than I do God. Mm. Don't commit adultery. You might be thinking, ooh, I hope no one finds out. Don't steal. Oops. Yeah, that's me. You might be thinking, don't covet. Ugh. The challenge is in understanding these. They're all pretty clear. Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't lie, remember the Sabbath, don't have other gods, honor your parents, don't take God's name in vain. That's the easy part. That's easy. You can memorize those in 10 seconds. The question isn't really so much what are they or should we keep them? Of course we should keep them. The question becomes how in the world? How in the world? Because I'm going to tell you again, when you get down to the closing stages of this earth's history, you're going to find that earth's final conflict really revolves around the law of God. You'll find that. I'll show you that in just a moment. So how do we keep the law of God? When we read the book of Romans and Paul writes, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good I do not find. He's talking about the experience where you want to do good, but you instead do bad. You don't want to do bad, but you just find yourself doing what you don't want to do. This is Paul addressing the challenge that everybody has at some time or another, and for some people it's ongoing. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. Isaiah wrote that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. You might think, oh, look at me. But God says the truth is mm, that's not so impressive. And Paul wrote in the book of Romans that there is none that does good, no, not one. And that leaves us in a pickle because the Bible talks about the saved people in earth's last days and describes them by saying, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that... And you're flipping through those Ten Commandments and you're going, ooh, I didn't actually kill someone, but... Jesus says, if you hate someone, you've really killed that person. 
I haven't actually stepped out on my spouse, but the Bible says if you look at someone to lust, that's adultery. Oof, guilty again. No graven images. Okay, I'm not bowing down to anything, but I do take God's name in vain, and I've been so disrespectful towards my parents. And here the Bible says the saved keep the commandments of God. That's really clear. God's people are to keep them. And the truth of the matter is when we keep the commandments of God, something really happens in our lives. You read about it in the Psalm, Psalm 119, that really, really long Psalm, where it says in verse 165, great what? Tell me great peace have they which love God's what? Law, and nothing shall offend them. You look around the world, there's no peace in the world. Middle East is just a powder keg. There's, there's a lack of peace all over Africa. There's parts of Europe that are very unstable. You know, the, the, this, this new version of the IRA just shot a journalist dead, uh, recently trying to drag Ireland back into the morass it was in when the troubles were going on. So there are forces all around the world that are trying to drag this world back into a, the Stone Age. The Bible says that we have peace, peace, when we love God's law, you understand that. If people were obedient to the Ten Commandments, there'd be no Iran-America conflict. There'd be no North Korean testing missiles. Wouldn't be happening. If we adopted God's Ten Commandments, all of us, as our personal code of conduct, and then there'd be peace in the heart. You know what happens. You sin, these guys run around on their wife. There's no peace. Now, when she finds out or he finds out, man, then there's hell in the home and you're ruining lives. There's no peace. You lie, then you've got to tell another lie to cover up the lie you told, and then another lie you steal, and you hope no one finds out, and someone finds out, and next you're being hauled before a judge. There's no peace. There's peace when we learn to love the law of God. This is what David wrote in the book of Psalms, and we believe that it's written there, and it's clear. Jesus said in Matthew 24, because iniquity, that sin, that's law-breaking, shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. We've been told that in these last days, Perilous times shall come. And why? Why is there a prevalence of evil and a lack of peace? It's because of the devil. Therefore, Revelation 12, 12, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having, having what? Tell me, having great wrath, because he knows that he only has how much? Short time, because the devil knows today he has one less day to work than he had yesterday. The next day, and again, another day less. He is working with increasing ferocity. That's what he's doing, with greater venom, with more malignancy. He's working because he has a short time, and what he wants to do is turn your feet out of the path of God. Once he does that, he's got you, you'll be lost. God is doing everything he can to turn your feet into the path of God, knowing that if that happens, you will then be saved. Paul makes something really clear. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. There's a lot in that verse. We are the servants of the one that we obey. If we are God's, if we are obeying God, then we are the servants of God. If we're disobeying God, if we've turned our back on him, then we are the servants of the enemy of souls. And also you see in this verse that you are what you choose to be. Obedience is a choice. Yes, 
Sin is a choice. Temptation comes, you come to the fork in the road. This way is righteousness, that way is evil. And you have the opportunity to stroke your chin and decide which direction you are going to go. Should you choose to be a servant of God, that is good. You are the servant of the one that you choose to obey. Writing in the Bible, John writes in Revelation, repeating what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, that down in the close of time, the world will follow a power called the man of sin or the man of lawlessness. In the prophecies of the Bible, it is told to us that there would rise up a power that would, and I'm quoting now, think to change times and laws, inspiring people to consider themselves their own moral authority. It's become kind of sexy in recent times for people to say, oh, no, no, I wouldn't call myself a Christian, but I am spiritual. Ray's going to church. Oh, no, no, you know, I'm, I'm too smart for that. So I take a little bit of Buddhism and I take a little bit of maybe, uh, I don't know, Hinduism and I take a little bit of Christianity and a little bit of meanity. And I put it all together and I define myself what I want to be in the direction I want to go. You know what that person has just done? They just made themselves God. I'll decide. No, you ought to decide whether or not you want to obey God and the right decision is to do so. According to the Bible, a hallmark of earth's last days is a massive disregard for the law of Almighty God. There's no denying that society has turned its back on God's ways, and of course I generalize, but there is no denying. Is there a way out of this? Can we have peace on earth? Can we experience peace in the heart? We like to think there's a better day coming. Society is going to turn around. I read where folks, oh, there's going to be a great revival and Australia is going to give itself to God. That ain't going to happen. Some Australians, hopefully a good number of Australians, sure. But are you ever, did you ever see water run uphill? Doesn't happen. Like water runs downhill, the tendency of the human heart is to sink deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. Jesus said, remember, because iniquity will abound, the love of many will wax cold. He really pledged. He told us things are going to get worse and they're not going to get better. We want a future for our children or our grandchildren. That's what we want. But I want to tell you something. Your kids don't even need to go looking for trouble because trouble comes looking for them. And it often comes cloaked in the most appealing things. And it's often at the end of a device. They may innocently be looking for something and find something else. And oh my goodness, I'm glad I didn't have to grow up in that mess. Does God have a way out? Oh, yes, he does. God has a plan for peace. Oh, yes, he does. Revelation chapter 14, starting in verse 6, John said, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to them who dwell on the earth and to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, here it is, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. You find the everlasting gospel, the final gospel message written there in the book of Revelation, starting in verse 6 of chapter 14. And where does that lead? It leads to what we saw a moment ago. Revelation 14, 12. Here are they that keep 
the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. How does that happen, though? Like Paul, we find ourselves wanting to go one way but being dragged by our DNA in another direction altogether. But here is the difference. God's going to have a people, but how in the world does the unconverted, rebellious, irreverent type of individual ever find himself or herself referred to as a saint? I think I might have told you this. I might have mentioned it last night. I think I did. But I'll tell you it again. Because this was a little production made by a friend of mine where he interviewed a lady where she was just talking. I mentioned this woman last night whose life just bottomed out. She went through hell. She was involved in every nasty thing imaginable. You wouldn't really call it her fault, although, of course, a person is the master of his, her own destiny because we have a choice. But, I mean, the ball just bounced the wrong direction for her every single time. And she, she ended up in a bad crowd and ended up with some guy. She didn't know he was a crack addict, and he ended up dragging her downhill, and the whole thing happened. But you know what? Her, her life was changed, and she's a believer now, and all of that... All of that is gone. Gone. So how does that happen? How does that happen when somebody can have a disastrous life and live in utter rebellion towards God and now embraces God? Or maybe someone who's, you know, your average Joe, who's living a, you know, a pretty good life by the world's standards, but really is corrupt. Here's the difference. David wrote about it in the Psalms. He said, listen, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. The, uh, another version says, your law is written in my heart. That's it. If God places his law in your heart, he doesn't place within you simply a, a, a set of legislative requirements. God places within you a desire to do his will and the power to follow his will. It's one thing to know you have to. It's another thing to want to. And when God changes your heart, he does so in a way that you will want to serve him, want to do his will, and you will find sin becoming more and more repulsive. It will lose its appeal. We want that. James described the Ten Commandments as God's law of liberty, freedom. And we want that law of freedom written in our heart. It's what the Bible refers to as the new covenant experience where God will take his law, put it in your mind, write it in your heart. What if God did that? What if God wrote his law in your heart? Then the person who doesn't want what's right will find himself or herself being drawn more and more in the direction of God's will. The sinner will find strength as God remakes her. If God writes his law in your heart, then you can go beyond knowing what you ought to do and you can get to the place to wanting God's will to be done in your life. And it's important why. I'm telling you why God's law comes into clear focus in the end of time. Of course it does. Because the devil is attacking God. He's attacking God's people. He's attacking the church, the churches. And how does he get you away from God? If you're obeying God, then God has got you. If Jesus is in your heart and living his life in you and your life is a life trending in the direction of God, God's got you. The devil can't have you. But if he can turn your feet out of the pathway of God and lead you in a direction of disobedience rather than obedience, then he's got you. That's why this becomes so, so very important. 
There are some people who just don't have any interest in obeying God. And then there are those who know God's will and they want to do it, but they can't. They find it impossible. And so God says, I'll write my law in your heart. You'll know it and you'll want it and you will love it. It's like a wall of protection around you to keep the devil out of your hair. Jesus said in Matthew chapter five, I do not want you to think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy. Jesus said, I came to do what? Fulfill, to to, to fill it full. He said, he said, assuredly, I say to you, Till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all of it is fulfilled. A jot, that means like the dot over an eye. A tittle is like the cross of a T. You can't even get rid of the least little bit of God's law, Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away. And heaven won't ever pass away, you understand. Jesus was saying, the law is here to stay. Why would he be so strong on this? Because he knows, well, I'll show you this. Sin is the transgression of the law. What does sin do? It separates us from God. Jesus is saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. The Ten Commandments are actually a transcript of the character of God. They show you just what God is like. And so if you want to grow in the likeness of God, this would be your guide. And the minute you start monkeying with that and changing that around and neglecting something and breaking something and omitting something and removing something, you are actually doing a disservice to the actual character of Almighty God. I'm going to say it again. You'll hear it again too before I'm done. End of time, the law of God is in focus. You've got some people who receive the mark of the beast and others who are are not marked with the mark of the beast, but they instead receive the seal of God. So if the saved are described as keeping the commandments of God, clearly the unsaved must be those who break the commandments of God. And please understand, I'm not talking about a little slip here and a trip there. We're talking about the overall tenor of the life, the habit of your life, the tendency of your life, where your heart, your mind really is. Now, I want you to notice this. You'll read this in Deuteronomy chapter 10 about God's law. You'll discover the law of God was written by God. It was written on tables of stone and it was put inside the Ark of the Covenant. That's what the Bible says. And the reason I want to show you this is because what you discover is a division in the law of God. You've got the Ten Commandments and then you've got something called the ceremonial law. Some people would call it the law of Moses. That business about about meat offerings and drink offerings and feast days and animal sacrifices. So when I say God wants us to keep his law, that's really very clear. I don't want you thinking, hold on, I've got to sacrifice a lamb and a goat and a turtle dove and I need to keep the Passover. Uh Uh-uh, that's not correct. So this is God's law, the Ten Commandments, written by God on tables of stone, put in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, Moses' law, given by God, The ceremonial law was written by Moses. It was written in a book. It was put in the side of the Ark of the Covenant. Very different. You could appeal to both and say, all of it is the law of God. You understand that. But one is the moral law and one is the ceremonial law, you understand. 
One was written on stone by God. One was written in a book, more than likely on a scroll, by Moses. They're different, given by God both, important both, but different for different times and they have different functions. And so we understand this about the ceremonial law. It contained ordinances and information about offerings and annual feasts and new moons. And the reason I show you this is because you will find some conscientious Christians who've been misled and they've been told, no, no, the Bible says that you don't have to obey the Ten Commandments. Figure that out. Figure that out. Imagine saying, oh no, I said I do, but I really don't have to keep my marriage vows. Huh, really? Creative thinking won't get you far. You, I mean, the, 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 the illogic of this really stuns me and you hear it again and again. Oh no, I'm a believer, I love God uh, and I serve God, but I just don't have to obey God. Hold on. So you're gonna say, I'm an Australian, or at least I live in Australia. You know, I got a parking ticket the other day. Tick me right off. Do you know how much a parking ticket costs? How do you know that? 81 bucks. 81. Have mercy. So I'm going to contact them and go, oh, go light on me. I'm from out of town and see if it works. I'll get back to you and tell you if it worked. It probably won't. You know, I got back, we're driving down the road and, and there's this flapping on the window. What in the world? I said, that can't be good. And my mate reaches up, pulls it in, and says, a parking ticket. A parking ticket? There were no parking meters back there. There were no signs back there. You know, there was a sign about three meters from my car, parking 60 minutes. And I'd been there for 75. Boom, $81. $81 for 15 extra minutes. It's like $5.50 a minute. <laughs> to say that I'm a Christian and I don't have to keep God's law is a lot like saying I'm in Victoria and I don't have to keep the laws of the state of Victoria. Where it says 80 kilometers an hour out on the freeway, I just drive 160. Where it says 100, I go 200. I mean, I, I'm... I'm here in Australia, but I don't have to obey the laws of Australia. That doesn't make any sense. I can park where I want and don't have to pay the parking ticket. Which has really got me thinking, because I am leaving the country. <laughs> Bad idea, I'm just joking with you. So where do we get the idea, where in the world would you get the idea that you can be a Christian and not keep the Ten Commandments. Well, you know where people get the idea? They get the idea from the Bible. I'll show you where. I understand where they're coming from. This is the book of Colossians, chapter 2. Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, and he says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that, that was against us, which was contrary to us. He took it out of the way, and he nailed it to the cross. Now, look in the Ten Commandments, and we looked at them earlier did you see any ordinances in there? Nothing, no ordinances. So it cannot mean the Ten Commandments. When Jesus died, he nailed the Ten Commandments to the cross. Oh, no. So what that means is when Jesus died, it was okay to lie and cheat and steal and commit adultery and bow down to graven images and have other gods. That's just absolutely unsensible. 
what does this mean then? If it doesn't mean that the Ten Commandments are done away with, what could it possibly mean? Well, I'll tell you something. The ordinances were contained in the ceremonial law, in the law of Moses. That's where the ordinances were, new moons and sacrifices and feast days and all of these regulations. But the passage goes on and says this, and this is where it gets curly for some people. Let no man therefore judge you in respect of meat or in drink. Now, that'd be meat and drink offerings. Or in respect of, notice this, a holy day, a new moon. Any new moons in the Ten Commandments? No. Or of the Sabbath days. Ah, are there any Sabbath days in the Ten Commandments? Okay, so people will read this and go, Sabbath days, Ten Commandments, blotted out, nailed to the cross, we don't keep it. Now that would be a massive stretch. But let's see if we can identify what these Sabbath days were. Notice this, the Sabbath days, look, which are a shadow of things to come. What Sabbath day was in the Ten Commandments? Seventh-day Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath. Is that a shadow of things to come? You wouldn't call it that. So what in the world is Paul talking about here? Don't let anybody judge you. Meat and drink, not the Ten Commandments. Holy day, nah. new moon, not the Ten Commandments. Or the Sabbath day, no, 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 wait a minute. Or the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. Now what Sabbath days were a shadow of things to come? Passover, pointed forward to Jesus. Feast of Trumpets, Feast of Tabernacles, Pentecost, the annual Sabbaths. There was a cluster of these, and they were Sabbaths, and they were holy days, but they didn't fall on a given day of the week. They fell on a given day of the year. That, that Sabbath could have been on a Wednesday, for example, these annual Sabbaths. And so what the Bible is saying is this. What was nailed to the cross was the ceremonial law with the, with the sacrifices and the Sabbaths that were ceremonial Sabbaths. It didn't make any sense at all that God would say, oh no, there's a commandment in the Ten Commandments. You've got to keep nine, but not the tenth. I mean, that's very, very selective thinking. And it's not consistent with what we read here. Don't let anybody judge you in meat and drink offerings, holy days, new moons, or the shadowy Sabbaths like Passover and Pentecost. Do we have to keep them today? No, we certainly do not. Is it important to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Trumpets? No, 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 no. If you choose to do that because you feel like you might get some joy out of it, I don't think God's going to hold it against you. Although, to observe Passover would be to deny Jesus. Because Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed for us. So when you keep the Passover, were you to do that, and you're looking forward to what exactly? Passover pointed to Jesus, the lamb who would be slain so that by his blood over us, the destroying angel ultimately would pass over and we would be saved. Something was blotted out. Imagine if that was the Ten Commandments. We'd be free to steal and kill. We'd be free to commit adultery and lie. We'd be free to dishonor our parents and use God's name in vain. Imagine if the Ten Commandments were blotted out. But they weren't. It was the ceremonial law that was blotted out. And so what that means, thank God, is you don't have to find a lamb to kill every time you have a sin to confess. Thank God for that. What it means is that you recognize that Jesus is the true lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You recognize your faith is in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Yes, of course, God gave us a law. He gave us a law to live by. The challenge we have isn't understanding which law we should keep. 
Ten Commandments. You knew that when you were this big. The challenge is knowing how in the world we can do it. And now we know how by Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is death. And we've all sinned. That's because sin separates from God. We've sinned and now a death sentence hovers over us. So what we need, friends, is not a way to figure out how to get out of keeping the Ten Commandments. That's kind of crazy. What happens or what is necessary is for us to understand how we can be forgiven of our sin and live in a way that's pleasing to God. Now notice this. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Notice this. What is it we deserve? We deserve death. That's what sinners deserve. Sin causes death. We've sinned. Death devolves upon us. Let me ask you a question. Is God going to give death to every sinner that ever walked the earth? No, he's not. How's that? What does the word of God tell us? The wages of sin is, but the gift of God is what? Eternal life through, ah, that's wonderful. So you have a choice in this thing. We've sinned all right. It's like God comes to you and says, he opens up the jail door and says, you can come out of there if you want. I don't know who would choose to stay there. Sin leads to death, but God saves us. How in the world does he do that? Well, the word of God says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 that by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. So we believe. That's our part. But what God has done is he has given grace. It's gracious of God. He's under no obligation to save any one of us. Imagine when Adam and Eve sinned and God said to himself, mm, the only way out of this is for my son Jesus to die. If it had been me, I would have said, no, no, sorry, everybody. Sorry. It's like that joke I was told. I shouldn't tell you a joke at a time like this, but I will. Woman went to the doctor with her husband. Doctor did an examination. He said, yeah, things are pretty serious, Ed, but... If you wouldn't mind waiting outside, uh, I need to talk to your wife. Spoke to the wife and said, ma'am, uh, Ed is uh, he's in very, very bad shape. He's going to die. Really, doctor? Yeah, he's going to die. Is there anything we can do? Well, yes, there is. If you would wait on him hand and foot, if you would take all of his responsibilities, let there be no stress in his life. Don't get on his case about anything do all the chores around the house that he does. Let there be peace and quiet and treat him like a king. I think he'll have a good chance. She goes out to the waiting room and husband says, what did he say, honey? And she says, I'm sorry, Ed, you're going to die. <laughs> Sorry, nothing good about that. <laughs> God is under no obligation to save any of us. Costs him so much. And yet he does. Why does God choose to save us? Because he's gracious. Grace 
is given us by God so that we are able to turn. You know what? If it wasn't for the grace of God, you, you wouldn't even want to do the right thing. You wouldn't have wanted to come here tonight. You wouldn't want to treat anybody with respect. It's the grace of God that does that. It's God's grace that draws us. There are people in this place tonight used to live a life of sin. Now they're living for God. Why? Because God drew that person. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What does grace do? And the reason I want to ask this question is because some people have a, a funny idea about grace. They say it's unmerited favor, which isn't an awful definition. It's a limiting definition, but it's, it's, it's not awful. And folks have the idea that because of grace, God will save me just how I am and my heart doesn't really need to change. God's so gracious. I'm, I don't want to be under the law. I'm under grace. So if you, if you say, well, God wants you to obey, that's people will say, people will say to that, oh, you're putting me under the law. Let me kind of get to the end before I go any further. When you come to Jesus, obedience becomes an inevitability. You know what we talked about earlier but at question time? Someone wrote a question. Uh, you say, I just have to believe. So are you saying it doesn't matter how I live my life? No, 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 no. When you believe, your life has changed. When you believe the Christ of heaven enters your heart, lives his life in you, and so now you want to do what's right, and even though you may stumble and, and, and you've got some growing to do, obedience to God, obedience of the Ten Commandments becomes an inevitability because what happens is Jesus lives his life in you, and now it's inevitable that if you let him, he will transform you and absolutely change you. When you come to God, by grace, you are born again. You're not the same person. Paul said, old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Paul wrote that we are by nature the children of wrath. But what happens is God even gives you a new nature. That's what he does by grace. He saves us by grace. Grace isn't just some kind of magic wand that God waves over you and says, okay, you're okay now. Grace is the power of God at work in your life, and it's powerful. The idea of I'm not under the law, I'm under grace, well, that's true. It's what the Bible says, but that doesn't mean that I'm free to disobey the law. When you're a lost sinner, you're under the law. And if you're trying to get to heaven by your own obedience, you're under the law. You're under the law. You are under the penalty for having broken the law. But when you accept what Jesus has done for you, you are forgiven of your sin. You're no longer under that penalty. You're under grace. That's what grace is. You're not under the penalty for having broken the law of God. You are under grace. The old sinner that you were is not the new person that you are. That's what grace does. You are made right with God. The biblical word is justified. And being justified by faith, we have peace. I'll tell you a little bit about grace by sharing a true life story with you. It was one day in the state of Kentucky, um, a good number of years ago, I was driving home after a, a presentation just like this, as a matter of fact. I was driving away from the city of Owensboro, Kentucky, to some little town out in the wilderness where I was staying for a month, not, I mean, just before I was uh, about to get married. And I was driving my fiance's car while she was really trusting me, gave me the car to drive it. I appreciated that very much. I'm driving down this old deserted country road, and I look in the rear vision mirror, and I see blue lights flashing. 
But I think to myself, huh, some poor sucker's going to get pulled up by the, pulled over by the cops tonight. And then I realize I'm in the middle of nowhere. I'm the only person on the road. That poor sucker was me getting pulled up by the police. So a man who came to me, I, I have a signature somewhere, Trooper Payne, came to me and he, and he did what cops do. Are you in a hurry? Are you late for something? No. I was just speeding. That's all. Late for anything? No, sorry, sir. I was no, not late for anything. So why in the world were you exceeding the speed limit back there? And I said, I was. I mean, Academy Award worthy. I was. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, I didn't know what the speed limit was. I said, I was unaware that I was exceeding the speed limit officer. He said, there's a sign back there. I said, I've never seen the sign. Just never seen it. I've been in the area for a week or so. I, I drive past it every night. I've never seen the sign. Sorry. I gave him my driver's license. He went back to his patrol car. And there I sat thinking to myself, oh, bummer. I'm about to get a ticket. This is a cost and expense that I can't afford. I'm about to get married. I don't need to be burning money up on traffic tickets. I prayed a prayer. My prayer was this, oh, Lord, if you could get me out of this, I would really appreciate it. But if you cannot, I understand, because after all, I broke the law. It's on me. But I'd really appreciate it if you could, if you could swing it somehow so that I don't get a fine here. I'd really appreciate it. Well, it wasn't too long, and Trooper Payne came back to the car. Now, was I guilty, yes or no? Oh, I was. Had I broken the law, yes or no? Yes, I was. And so therefore, I was under the penalty that would come from breaking the law. I was under the law. I'd broken the law. I was guilty and Trooper Payne had every right to throw the book at me. But the funniest thing was, he gave me something. He said, Kentucky State Police courtesy notice. Ha! Who knew that the cops in Kentucky could be courteous? Thank God they could. And it said, speeding less than five miles an hour over the limit. Put a tick mark right there. I'm like, wow. He said, don't let me catch you speeding around here again. And I looked at him and I said, with all sincerity, Trooper Payne, you will never catch me speeding around here again. <laughs> I'm not gonna, that's not going to happen. You're not going to catch me. What was I under before? The law. But now that Trooper Payne, out of the goodness of his heart, I don't know. I told this story once somewhere and the person said, I know that guy. He never lets anybody off. <laughs> so what was that? It, was a, it would say like John Wesley said, my heart was strangely warmed. The spirit of God moved on Trooper Payne. And he was gracious to me. And I, I actually mean that. I was under the law, but now I was under grace. He didn't need to let me off. I was guilty. But he said, I'll let you off. It's okay. Go your way. Don't do it anymore, though. So what do you think I did? Drop the clutch, spun the tires, sprayed his patrol car with gravel, zoomed off down the road. Speed limit is 35 miles an hour. I was doing 80. Vroom! Through town. Because after all, I'm under grace. And being under grace means I can live how I want. Right? No. Being under grace actually means you're under an even greater obligation to vindicate the good judgment of the person who showed grace to you. So if your sins nailed Jesus to the cross, and they did, yours, mine too, but yours. If your sins nailed Jesus to the cross and Jesus says, I forgive you, 
you can go. I pardon you. I extend grace to you. What will be in your heart? There'll be gratitude there. There'll be a response that says, man, that was big of you. I don't want to do that to you anymore. Sin hurts you. And so now I want to live in a way that's in harmony with your law. Thank you for showing me grace. Jesus is gracious. He met a woman at the well one day. Ah, how about your husband? Oh, no, no, I didn't have a husband. Jesus said, you're right about that. You've got a whole long list of them in the past. The fellow you're living with now, you're not married to. Ooh. And Jesus didn't condemn her. He was just reading her heart, and he showed her grace. Woman taken in the act of adultery. It's care- You've got to be careful not to imagine too much here, but she was taken in the act of adultery, dragged out of the bed, and frog marched down to the, the, the feet of Jesus, <laughs> thrown on the ground. And I just imagine this woman trying to cover herself up with the bed sheet she grabbed. And the men are picking up rocks to stone her, and they say to Jesus, ah, what does the law say? The woman was caught in adultery. Why, the, the law says she ought to be stoned. What do you say? Jesus could easily have said, let those stones fly, boys, and done it with justification. And the woman, when she heard the holy rabbi uh, being asked this question, she knew in a moment it's going to be a blizzard of rocks, and I'm dead, pulverized. But Jesus didn't say, cast the stones. He said something rather different, and all those men slithered away like vermin. She turned, he turned to the woman and said, where are your accusers? And she said, nobody here. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn thee. Then what did he say? Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. That's grace. Go and sin no more. That's grace too. Because that's what grace can do in a person's life. Jesus forgives. The Bible says you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. It says it in Psalm 86 and verse 5. Our God is a forgiving God. You will read in one of the Psalms where it says again and again and again, his mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. Mercy and grace aren't exactly the same, but they're they're like Siamese twins. Our God is gracious does not mean that we ought to want to break the Ten Commandments of God. How do you want to do that? When you want to do that, it's evidence that you are living separate from God. But when you know Jesus, oh, I want to forget that. I want to forget that. When you know Jesus, you know that he says, if you love me, do what? You know what I think? Actually, you know what I believe? You didn't come here to hear what I think. The way I read that verse is this. Jesus is not saying, if you love me, prove it. Keep my commandments. Instead, Jesus is saying, if you love me, something amazing is going to happen. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's what will happen. Because that's what love does in a person's experience. If you love me, keep my commandments. Should we keep the Ten Commandments? We must when Jesus enters our heart. Jesus doesn't come into your life and bring disobedience. He comes into your life and he brings his obedience and his power. He brings his grace. Grace enables you to live in harmony with the law of God. One night, Jesus was in a boat. Sleeping in the boat with his disciples, the boat was on the Sea of Galilee. It's a very small lake. Well, not a teeny tiny lake, but it's a pretty small lake. 
They're on the Sea of Galilee and a storm comes up. And the wind blows. It's howling out there. The wind is coming down the, 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 the hills up there. And the hills on that end of the lake, that's where Capernaum is. That's where Jesus fed the 5,000. And the wind is whistling down over that, sweeping across the lake. And these men in their little fishing tub are petrified. They are seasoned fishermen, but they are scared. The Bible says in another account they were in jeopardy. Has a storm ever come into your life? Has a storm, has, has the, the stormy winds of life ever blown you around, ever rocked your boat? Sure they have. Could be an interpersonal storm or a health scare or a financial concern. It could be that you feel your grip on God is weakening and loosening and you just don't know how you're going to get out of this thing alive. When the storm winds blow in your life, Remember what Jesus did in the storm that night. He stood up and he said to the wind and the waves, peace, be still. Peace, be still. How are things with you? When you read in the Bible that God says, if you love me, then you're going to keep my commandments. You may even say, oh, I'm falling so far short. What you need is Christ's peace. And peace comes into your life when Jesus comes into your life and brings his obedience. Would you like Jesus to stand up in your boat and say, peace, be still? He'll do that. That's what he'll do. Tonight, friend, I wonder if you would reach out to Jesus and say, Lord, speak peace into my life. You want Jesus to speak peace into your life? He'll do it. And he'll do it in a way that will impact you and change you. He'll do it in the most gracious way and your life will be lived to the glory of God. God's Ten Commandments, that's the ABCs for the Christian. Down here in the close of time, we see that the last great battle between good and evil before Jesus comes back will center around his law. We need to settle it in our heart tonight where we're going to stand then. We make a decision now. It stands us in good stead then. Can you make a decision for Jesus tonight?